Father, thank you so much for your love, your mercy, your kindness, your grace, your goodness, that you would look upon us with pity and mercy and compassion and plan before the foundation of the earth to send your son to die for us. Thank you that he willingly came and bore our sins in his body on the cross. Father, thank you for your mercy and grace. And now as we look into your word, Lord God, I pray that you'd prepare our hearts, that uh, you would take away the heart of stone, those who don't know you, convict them, help them see themselves and your son rightly. For those of us who know you, may we confess any sin that we would receive your word implanted and allow it to do its work in our hearts today. We can't understand your word apart from your spirit illumining it, Lord God, and we pray that you would do so for us today. We pray this in your precious name. Amen. Have you ever suffered for doing what is right? Have you ever suffered for doing the right thing? You trusted the Lord, you knew the right thing to do, and you did it by his power and strength, and you suffered. Maybe people spoke evil against you because of those circumstances. Maybe you're being persecuted right now or being slandered or maligned because of the righteousness of Christ manifest in your life, having trusted and relied on him. The reality is we're all going to experience the sufferings of Christ, not the redemptive ones, but the sufferings for uh, that would be aimed at Christ if we're true believers and we're abiding in him. Whether it's work, whether it's your marriage, whether it's church, whether it's school, whether it's relationship, whether it's friends, whatever it might be, we're going to suffer at times. And the Lord Jesus made it clear that there will be those who speak things falsely about us on account of him. The reality is we do and will suffer if we are walking in the context of a right relationship with Jesus Christ. Well, in those times, it can be discouraging at times when people say things that are wrong towards you or whatever it might be. We're going to be looking in 1 Peter, and they were suffering. And they were going to suffer a lot more, those believers in Asia Minor. A literally fiery ordeal would be coming upon them for their testing, and they were not to be surprised. They were being slandered and maligned. We'll see that later on in chapter 2. They were suffering for Christ. And yet the Lord wants to encourage them and encourage us. And he did, and I pray he does today through his word. Would you turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2? And we're going to be looking at verses 9 to 10. And I believe we're going to see how we can keep from being discouraged. You know, unless you have like an iron heart, the reality is we get discouraged. Things happen that, that knock us off kilter. We want to do the right thing and things happen and we can be tempted to be discouraged. But I think today we're going to see our third part where we see that Peter reveals our marvelous position in Christ should be an encouragement to each and every true believer. Now again, as I just mentioned, uh, these believers were suffering and they were about to suffer. It's about 64 AD in Asia Minor. And they're about to suffer very greatly and they had been suffering And Peter has already reminded them that they had been chosen for a great salvation, that they were temporary residents sojourning on this earth for a short time. And that's what we are as believers. This is not our home. This is not our home right here. He has shared the tremendous reality that through the mercy of God, they have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This tremendous salvation in Christ this tremendous salvation with an eternal hope that is alive and a future inheritance reserved for us in heaven. And we ourselves are protected by God's power for this salvation to be consummated, to be culminated, to be ready to be revealed. And yet within that, Peter makes it clear that we do have temporal trials in this life. That we, if God deems so, we are going to be distressed by various trials but we need to keep rejoicing in light of those trials because of those trials because God is using them to purify us. He's weeding out sin in our lives and 
refining us that we would reflect the image of Christ. And we saw in that that he gave some, after sharing the tremendous reality of our salvation in Christ, gave us some commands in chapter 1. First of all, we're to fix our hope on the grace to be revealed to us when Christ Jesus comes. In light of the salvation that we as true believers have, that's where our hope should be. We are to be holy because he is holy. That is his plan. We've been called unto holiness. And we are to be holy in all our behavior, as he says in his word. That only happens in the context of depending on Christ and relying on him. We are to live our lives in the context of godly fear knowing the price that was paid for our redemption, the blood of Christ. We are to love the body because that is what we were born again unto, a sincere love of the body through this seed which was imperishable, that is the word of God, the gospel that was preached to you. We are to, lastly, we are commanded to yearn for the pure milk of the word. We're to long for that food, his word, that we would grow in respect to salvation. And yet that salvation is not simply because of the word alone. It's connected to the God of the word. And this is if we have tasted the kindness of the Lord. You can't grow in respect to salvation if you haven't become saved. If you haven't tasted his kindness and repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus Christ. And then we came to our passage where we began a couple times ago together. And it's between verses 4 and 10. Where I believe it's an encouragement for believers. There are no commands here at all. There's nothing for us to do. We're not commanded to do anything. We're encouraged concerning the truth of God in relationship to us and what he is doing in our lives. And we need to get our eyes out of the temporal realities of the sufferings that we might go through for following Christ to the eternal realities of what God is actually doing in our lives. And the only way to do that is to be in the word of God and to allow the God of the word to illumine our hearts. We're going to be looking today at verses 9 and 10, but this passage really starts in verse 4, and we've actually already seen verses 4 to 6 and then 7 and 8. So I want to read through the entire portion, and then we will look at verses 9 and 10. And coming to him as a living stone. Remember I shared that we come to Jesus. When When we come to the word of God and yearn for it, we don't just come to God's word alone. We come to Christ. We come to him, and then he actually then builds us up. And coming to him as a living stone rejected by men, but choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him shall not be disappointed." The tremendous reality that we as believers are the temple of the living God, that the Spirit of God indwells us, and he is building us up as this holy temple, that that imagery of the Old Testament, that physical temple which resembled what was in heaven. But we are now the temple of God. He is building us up. And not only are we the temple of God, we are the priests in the temple to offer up spiritual sacrifices to God. That's what God is doing through his word, through Christ, through Christ. And it is a tremendous work that God is doing, and it should be an encouragement to us. And we say, what is going on in my life? What is going on in our lives is we are being built up as a a spiritual house, a holy temple. We're holy priests to offer those spiritual sacrifices. And we'll look at those a little later. And he says in verse 6, for this is contained in Scripture... Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone. Jesus Christ came to his own, the Jews. He took on human flesh. He came to Zion. And he is the stone which the builders rejected. He is the cornerstone of a relationship with God. You cannot come to Christ or to the Father apart from going through Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through him. He is the cornerstone. He is what we are saved by and what we are built Upon. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him shall not be disappointed. We saw that word spoke of being ashamed or or even running away in a sense. If you trusted in Jesus Christ, no matter how bad things look in this world, you're not going to be ashamed. You're not going to be ashamed. And then we saw last 
time we were together last week, this precious value. What's this precious value? It's Christ, which we've been saved by and built upon, this valuable stone, this this God who gave himself for us. This precious value is for you who believe. It's for believers. And we saw last week that every single person who has existed and will exist will have to deal with the reality of the person of Jesus Christ. He will either be precious to you because you will be saved by him and you will grow in him, or he will be what you stumble over to your eternal damnation. Verse 7, this precious value then is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, a contrast. The stone which the builders rejected, that's the Jewish leaders, they rejected him. They wanted to build their religion on their works rather than on the person of Jesus Christ through faith. And they rejected Christ. This became the very cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word. And to this doom they were also appointed. God commands all everywhere to repent. Jesus Christ said, repent and believe the gospel, Mark chapter 1. God demands that you turn from your sins to him and trust in his son, Jesus Christ, for salvation. If you do not, you are disobedient to the word. And there is a doom appointed to you if you reject Jesus Christ. You can live your life all you want to do, all the things you want to do, until the day you die. And the day you die, your sovereignty is removed from yourself, and you are under God's eternal punishment forever, based on how you If you reject Christ, but this same Christ, if you believe in him, you acknowledge your sin, he will save you and he is precious and he is precious. So how do we keep from being discouraged more suffering? First of all, we see what God is doing in our lives, building us up through Jesus Christ by his word. Secondly, we realize that Christ is for us. If God would not spare his own son, how will he not give us all things? Christ is for us. Who could be against us if God is for us, right? This precious value, this choice stone is for you, is for you. And that leads us to the end of our passage, which is, again, a complete unit here, but we didn't have enough time to go through each portion or the whole thing at once, where I believe we're going to see that this precious Christ, this tremendous Christ, this tremendous reality brought about a tremendous position that we are in God. And we're going to be encouraged to see how God values us as his treasured possession. Verse 9 in our passage. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. No commands, just truth about believers. Truth that should encourage you if you really do know Jesus Christ. If you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Truth that should encourage you. And notice our passage begins with a conjunction here. But there's a contrast. There's a contrast between those who have been appointed to their doom because they rejected Christ. Those who disbelieve. And then here, as we will see, those who believe. But in contrast to those who are doomed because of the rejection of Christ... You are something. You are something. God wants us to see something. You know, and sometimes we as believers, we recognize that we're nothing, right? If anyone thinks he is something, he is nothing. But we can take those passages and stretch them out of their context. We are something in Christ. But it's all because of Christ, and he gets all the glory. But we need to understand who we are in Christ and how he values us because of Christ, and that is an encouragement to us in the midst of difficulties as we walk by faith. Notice, we're going to see that in these statements that ultimately we are God's special possession. We are his possession. And this ought to encourage you. This ought to encourage you. Verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. 
here we have some wonderful truths that are, that are very close to one another. Notice the parallelism in there. We see it's pointing to the reality that believers are a distinct people. They are, uh, notice the terms race, priesthood, nation, people, modified by chosen, royal, and holy. Chosen, royal, and holy. But you are a chosen race, 1 Peter 2, 9. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Now many people have noted that this statement sounds like what the Lord called his covenant people, the nation of Israel. And that's true. The term chosen race probably is drawn from Deuteronomy 10, verse 15, and Isaiah 43, verse 20. And it's clear that the terms royal priesthood and holy nation and a people for God's own possession seem to be drawn from Exodus chapter 19, verse 5 and 6. Let's turn there. Exodus chapter 19. Here we have God through Moses speaking to the people who were in a covenant with him. This is the nation of Israel. This is not us. This is the nation of Israel, that first covenant that he made with them at Sinai. And this is what's happening here. And he explains to them concerning their obedience to this covenant. If they were to obey, this is who they would be. This is who they would be. Exodus 19, verse 5. And notice the similarity in the wording that we see here and in our passage. Exodus 19, 5. Now then, if indeed you will obey my voice and keep my covenant. And by the way, they couldn't obey it in their own strength. They had to obey it by faith. They had to have their hearts circumcised. If they would obey his voice, keep my covenant, he says, then you will be my own possession among the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. Now this brings up the question. Some have said that when we come to faith, we become Jews at this point, that the church is Israel. I don't believe Scripture reveals that's the case at all. But some will use this passage specifically as one of their proof texts to say that. The reality is, Peter is not saying that Gentile believers become Jewish believers. Scripture reveals that if you are a Gentile, you are still a Gentile when you are redeemed. This isn't speaking of the fact that we would become Jews like those in the Old Covenant. It's speaking of the reality of becoming God's people. And there's a parallelism based on what God's people were in the Old Testament and what we see now in the church. Peter understood this in the book of Acts. He made a distinction between saved Jews and saved Gentiles. He didn't say we're all the same now. Briefly looked at Acts chapter 15, verse 7. This is the same Peter writing... Our letter here, inspired by the Spirit. And remember, Peter, he, he, he sure stuck his foot in his mouth a lot. He messed up, didn't he? But he grew in Christ. And he became more and more like Christ. He was built up on the foundation, the cornerstone. Acts chapter 15, verse 7. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that now the debate is about the Gentiles that are getting saved and how do we deal with the issues of the law and this transition, all this stuff. There was some confusion. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you. Now, brethren, he's speaking to Jews, by the way, that by the mouth of Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did us. Hey, the Gentiles got the Spirit of God when they believed, and so did we. He made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. In terms of salvation, there is no distinction between male, female, Jew or Greek, whatever it might be. There's no distinction. We are all saved by faith in Jesus Christ, but yet we are still who we are. I am still a man. I'm still a Gentile. I'm a male Gentile believer. And what we see here is that we don't become the Jews. And indeed in Revelation, it's pretty clear that there is every tribe and tongue and nation. It's not just all one people group of a homogeneous people group. It is every tribe, nation, and tongue that will give praise and glory to God, those who have been redeemed. Let me share a few passages. Actually turn to Revelation 5.9. And what we're going to see that within our 
human ethnicity that God has put us together as one people. Within the differences, we are one, as we'll see, because of salvation in Christ. Revelation 5, 9, And they sang the new song, saying, Worthy art thou, this is speaking of the Lamb, of Jesus Christ, to take the book and break its seals. For thou wast slain and didst purchase for God with thy blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And then go to chapter 7, verse 9 in Revelation. And after these things, I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Just a little sidetrack, but the reality is back in our passage The key point is not that we become Israel. We don't become Israel. The key point is that we become a treasured possession like Israel was to be if they would have obeyed him and got saved, as we'll see. They will eventually, as we'll see in in, uh, Romans chapter 11. But we are his treasured possession. We are his people, a treasured possession like the nation of Israel was and was supposed to be. So back to our passage, back to... First uh, Peter, First Peter, chapter two. So, let's go back to verse seven and read through the contrast. This precious value then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. But, but, you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. This is the reality of what true believers are. Notice, first of all, he says, in contrast to those doomed to eternal destruction, believers are a chosen race. The Greek word genos, or genos, speaks of kind. It would speak of race. You think of different kinds of races, right? It speaks of a distinction. In the Old Testament translation of, or the Greek Old translation of the Old Testament, in Genesis, those things that were made after their kind were made after their genos. The distinctions. You know, certain trees bore certain fruit after their kind. There's, there's kinds, there's distinctions. I think that's the point here. We are a distinct race, as we will see. We are distinct. And notice he says this term, he modifies this term distinct with the term chosen. We are a chosen race or a chosen kind. A chosen kind. This term chosen comes from the Greek word electos. And we saw those references earlier in chapter 2, verse 4 and verse 6 to Christ as the choice stone, the precious stone. And not only does Peter want us to understand that Christ was chosen and precious to bring forth our salvation, but we are also choice. Remember, we are an elect kind. Back in 1 Peter 1.1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, and Bithynia, who are chosen. Now, he's going to end this letter saying the chosen lady... He wants to make it clear to these people who are suffering, God chose you. You are special in that sense. You are distinct in that sense. Now this issue of election causes a lot of division. But I think that division would be eliminated if we just looked at the word of God and believed what God said and left our feelings aside. He says that we're chosen, the Greek word electos. And we understand that. that when we you know, elect somebody as a president, we choose them. It's really a simple concept that means to choose. We are the ones who have been chosen. Verse 11, or verse, chapter 1, verse 1, we are chosen. Verse, chapter 2, verse 9, but you are a chosen race. But what were we chosen for? What were we chosen for in this context? What were we chosen for in light of what Scripture declares? Scripture reveals that we were chosen in advance by God to be saved. 
We were chosen in advance. And there are many passages that share this. Let's go through a few of them. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. And this should be an encouragement for you if you're a believer. You are a distinct chosen, your chosen race. In contrast to those who go to their destruction because they voluntarily and willfully reject Christ, you are a chosen race. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as, and here's the first blessings in the Father, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. Isn't that great? And then look at Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. Colossians 3, verse 12. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. And so those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Hey, that's not our real nature, is it? That's, that's not our old nature, is it? That's, that comes from Christ, our new nature. Put it on. Put it on. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Verse 4. Excuse me, chapter 1, verse 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 2. All those T's, it's in there. Find it in one of those. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 2. We give thanks to God always for you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith, your labor of love, your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of God our God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. God thought of us and he chose us. It's a special thing. Now, the reality is that those who go to their damnation chose to reject Christ. They made a choice to reject Christ. They are fully responsible for that. The gospel is open to all. Scripture believes that we are constantly, Scripture reveals that we are constantly identified as the chosen. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 makes it clear that we have been, that we are going to be sanctified clearly through the Lord. 2 Thessalonians 2.13, but we should always give thanks to you, to God for you, brethren, excuse me, beloved, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you Actually, I didn't tell you to turn there, but let's turn there. 2 Thessalonians 2.13. This is really important. 2 Thessalonians 2.13. But we should always give thanks to God for you, beloved brethren, by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for what? For salvation. He says, through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. God chose us to save us. To save us. And we are seen in Scripture consistently as those who are chosen. We are God's elect, Romans 8.32. We are the chosen of God, Titus 1.1. We are those called the chosen, 2 Timothy 2.10. And in our passage, we are a chosen race. A distinct chosen people, as we will see. Now, as I've already mentioned, the Bible is clear that man is responsible. If you hear his voice, don't reject it. Don't harden your heart. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Even the Lord Jesus grieved over those who would not repent. Matthew 23, 37. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And you were unwilling The reason why people go to hell is because they're unwilling to believe in Jesus Christ and to admit their sin and be saved. Ezekiel 18, verse 32, For I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord, therefore repent and live. The reality is that man is responsible, but also there is a reality in Scripture that many are called, but few are chosen. Matthew twenty two fourteen. So how do we deal with these things? We don't. 
We thank God for it. We thank God that he chose us. If you're saved, you know you've been chosen. And if you're not saved, go before the Lord and say, open my heart that I would believe your word, that I'd be saved before it's too late. I can't figure it out, but I know that God is good. I know he's righteous and kind, and this is an encouragement to us, not a discouragement, but an encouragement that we are a distinct, chosen people. When you are suffering, remember that God thought of you specifically, and he chose you. He chose you. Now, along with being a chosen race or a chosen kind, back in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, he says, we are a royal priesthood. Again, we have an allusion to what I shared earlier in Exodus 19.6. We, they were to be a kingdom of priests, a, a royal priesthood. The term royal speaks of belonging to or fit for a king. You know, it's interesting when I think of royalty, you know, it's interesting, well, this last, just a couple days ago, my, myself and my two boys went to the inauguration in Washington. And there was pomp and circumstance, and although we don't have a king, it was, seemed royal. There was grandeur to it. There was grandeur to the ceremonies. But yet what's more amazing than an earthly celebration of an earthly leader is the reality that we are a royal priesthood. A royal priesthood. We are, in a sense, his royalty under the king. We're a royal priesthood. Notice what he says here. And we actually go back a little bit. We see this in verse 4 of chapter 2. And coming to him as a living stone rejected by men, but choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. The reality is we are priests. This is the priesthood of all believers. We are those who who can come before the living God. We can offer now spiritual sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving. We can offer ourselves as living sacrifices as we are being built up in the word. We are his priests. We are his priests. And we are in a spiritual house, a temple. We are the temple of God. This tremendous reality that we are a royal priesthood. We are a royal priesthood. We are being built up as a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Remember we saw back earlier in chapter 2 that this is one of the things God is doing in our lives. As he is building us up through the word of God, he is causing a change in our hearts that we would offer ourselves as living sacrifices, that we would offer up sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving like we see in Hebrews chapter 13. We would offer up the sacrifice of praise, which is thanksgiving from our lips. This is what he's doing in our lives. And by the way, if you are not a thankful person to God and you've never been, I'd question whether you know the Lord. Romans chapter 1 speaks of those who do not give thanks. The reality is if you've truly been saved, there's going to be thankfulness in your heart for what Christ has done. There's going to be sacrifices of praise. And God is building us up to do more and more. And there's so much joy in that. So notice we have this first portion here. We are a chosen kind, a royal priesthood. And then notice we are also a holy nation, middle of verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Again, this echoes what we see in Exodus chapter 19.6. The term nation here comes from the Greek word ethnos. And it is almost completely translated every time in the plural Gentiles, speaking of the nations. Whenever you see the word Gentiles in Scripture, it's ethnos in the plural. It's nations. And he is saying here that we are a holy nation. Again, look at Exodus chapter 19. Exodus 19, verse 5 and 6. He says, Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And he says of us here in First Peter that we believers, those who believe, in contrast to those who disbelieve, are a holy nation. The term holy simply means to be set apart. 
And we were called a holy priesthood back in chapter 2, verse 5. And remember that because God is holy, we are to be holy. Look back in chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. As obedient children, do not be conformed to your former lusts. Don't, don't, don't desire the way you used to desire before you got saved. Which were yours in ignorance. Yeah, you didn't know. You were blind. You didn't understand. He says, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. God has called us out of darkness, as we will see, into his marvelous light, that we would reflect his image, that we would abide in him and manifest his character, which is holiness. We are a holy group. We have been set apart unto salvation. We've been set apart. In position, we are saints. That term saints is a derivative of holy. We are those who are the holy ones because of Christ. When you believed in Jesus Christ, his righteousness was applied to you. And you became holy in God's sight because of Jesus Christ. Now, practically speaking, he is working on our practical holiness on a day-in and day-out basis. But in position, we are holy before him. We are a set-apart nation. We are a set-apart group of people. It's amazing. Look at verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. It is there's royalty. It's special. These are special words. It's not to elevate us. It's to show us the value God has concerning us. We need to see that because we can be discouraged. He says here, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And notice he says here, and this really summarizes it, a people for God's own possession. We are a people for God's own possession. Amazing. We are to be possessed by him. As we'll see, acquired and kept his possession. We have another synonym here. We had kind or race, then nation. or Now we have the term people, laos. It speaks of a, of a group of people. The term possession speaks of acquiring and protecting. You know, when you have a possession, you acquire that possession first. And then you protect that possession that you have. It is yours. And the marvelous reality is that we believers are God's people. When you are suffering, and you are suffering for Christ, don't forget who you are. You are God's treasured possession. He sent his son for you. He cares about you. You are important to him. We are important to him. We are his people. We are his possession a people for god's own acquiring for his possession and how was it that we were acquired by god and became his people it happened through the blood of christ turn to hebrews chapter 8 and this is a quote of the new covenant revealed in jeremiah 31 31 through 4 it's an important place you have the old covenant which was a covenant between israel and god and you have a new covenant that is based on the shed blood of jesus christ that brings forgiveness of sins but it also brings some other things hebrews chapter 8 verse 10 he's quoting jeremiah by the way For this is the covenant. Now, the term covenant, just so if you don't know, it means an agreement. It could be a two-sided agreement. It could be a one-sided agreement. Here is a one-sided agreement. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds, and I will write them on their hearts. He's going to put a word on the heart. He says, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach every fellow citizen, every brother, saying, No, the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. That's a, that hasn't been fulfilled yet. That's when Israel becomes saved. But notice why all this happens. For I will be merciful to their iniquities. I will remember their sins no more. And the reality is we Gentiles participate in the blessings of the new covenant through faith in Jesus Christ. Remember, Jesus said this is the blood of the new covenant for the forgiveness of sins. And we became, through Christ, his people, and he is our God. He's our God. We are his people. We are the sheep of his pasture. We are his possession. We're his possession. Tremendous reality. 
a price was paid. First Peter 1, we saw that uh, this price was paid, the precious blood of the Lamb. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 6. This is an exhortation to believers based on their identity and as a people. But there's the possibility that if one doesn't respond, maybe they aren't identified with the Lord. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. It's a little background. The Corinthians had basically rejected the Apostle Paul, and he was trying to woo them back to, to him, but not to him, but to the Lord. And they had taken on a, an, affic, an affen, a, affection for false teachers. You see that in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And these unbelievers that they are yoked to are really, as we'll see in 2 Corinthians 11, these false teachers. So yes, you shouldn't be bound in, to an unbeliever in marriage, but here, that's the context. 2 Corinthians 6.14 do not be bound together with unbelievers for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness or what harmony has Christ with Belial, that's Satan. Or what does a believer have in common with unbelievers? You have nothing in common with an unbeliever. The only time you have commonality is when you are like them. He says, or what agreement has a temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And because we are his people, come out of their midst. Come out of their midst. Don't yoke yourself with them. Don't yoke yourself with their likes, their, their desires, their pro- thought process. Don't yoke yourself he says, therefore, come out of the midst and separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you. You shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, Second Corinthians 7, 1, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. It doesn't mean we're snobby towards the unbelievers. We need to be gracious and kind towards them, as we'll see. We need to ask for doors, for the Lord to open doors, but we shouldn't be yoked with them. One last passage, turn to Titus chapter 2. It is because of what Jesus did that we became his possession. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. Titus has uh, given, or Paul has given Titus commands to share with believers in Crete. And in the second chapter, he's given commands for older men and older women, young men, young women, and slaves and masters. And then he explains, how can you do all those things? What's the way that we can do the stuff that God asks us to do? We need an explanation. And he says it here. For the grace of God, Titus 2.11, has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. You've got to be saved. And that same grace, verse 12, is instructing us through Jesus Christ, to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, notice this, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself, notice this, a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. We're his possession Jesus Christ paid the price and we became God's people. We became his possession, a treasured possession. And we need to remember that. The Lord loves us. We're his. We're his. He is our God and we are his people. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. When you are tempted to be ashamed because the world makes fun of you, when you are tempted to be ashamed because they make fun of uh, your behavior in Christ, whether they understand it's in Christ or not, when you're tempted to be ashamed or discouraged, remember, you're a God's possession. When you do the right thing in a marriage relationship and your spouse mocks you, whatever it might be, whether it's in a friendship, whether it's at school, whatever it might be, when you trust the Lord and do the right thing, and you're tempted to be discouraged, remember who you are in Christ. You are treasured because of Christ. We're his possession. We're his possession. Now at this point in our passage, back in verse 9, he reveals some of the reasons why he made us his possession. But you were a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, and here we go, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. These are some great words here. You think of the word marvelous and excellence. You know, this is, 
This is wonderful. He says here is the reason why we became his possession. Now, it's not the only reason, but it is one of the reasons, by the way. There are other reasons in Scripture, but this is one of them, the one that Peter wants us to understand. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. It's really great. The term proclaim comes from the Greek word ex angelo, to, to speak outward, to proclaim, to declare. It speaks of a verbal declaration. And the word translated excellencies comes from the Greek word arete, which speaks of that which is virtuous or excellent, that which is worthy of praise. That which is worthy of praise. Paul uses this word in Philippians chapter 4. Turn into Philippians 4, verse 8. Philippians 4, 8. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute. Now, now and then he summarizes based on these next two phrases. If there is any arete, any excellence, if anything worthy of praise, it's in parallel. Let your mind dwell on these things. Boy, would we be spared a bunch of pain in this life if we just obeyed this passage. Because our minds dwell on all kinds of stuff that it shouldn't be, right? Stuff that's going on in our lives, whatever it might be. He says if there's anything, any excellence, anything that is virtuous that causes you to praise God, it's obviously speaking of God's virtue and God's excellence. We see this in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Turn to 2 Peter 1, verse 3. This is a great verse, by the way. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him. Hey, through the true knowledge of Christ, and we'll see in a second, through his precious and magnificent promises, we have everything we need for life and godliness. And notice what he says. Through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and arete, excellence. Excellence. And if you go down a little further, and you can do this on your own time, it is a characteristic of believers. It's translated moral excellence. These things should be increasing in our lives. The characteristics of Christ should be increasing, and that renders us neither useless or fruitless in the knowledge of the Lord. It's speaking of excellence, characteristics of the living God. So we have here this tremendous reality that we are his chosen people a royal a royal priesthood a holy nation a people for god's own possession that we would declare his deeds that are worthy of praise those excellent virtuous things that god has done that's one of the reasons why we became his people that we proclaim it we used to walk in darkness we were slaves to sin. We were blinded. We didn't know where we were going. We love the darkness. Yet God, through his Son, by his Spirit, illumined our hearts that we might see the reality of our sins and the glory of Christ and what he has done for us. And he called us out of darkness into his marvelous light, into a relationship with a holy God, and we should be proclaiming that. And I find it so interesting at times when people talk about their, their testimony. It's sometimes it's mechanical. It's a verse. It's the verses quoted or whether. When we got saved, we were sinners stuck in sin. We've been saved from that. God, through His Son Jesus Christ, has saved us from darkness to light, and we should be, as we'll see, ready to proclaim those truths. Ready. When Paul was recounting his conversion, testifying of Jesus, he shares this. Turn to Acts chapter 26. If you think little of your conversion, then maybe your conversion was little. Acts 26, verse 12. When you start to realize how sinful we really are and what God has saved us from, oh boy, he deserves all the praise. And that should be coming out of our mouths. Acts 26, verse 12, and Paul is, uh, is uh, giving a, a uh, defense before, uh, I think it's Agrippa here, Ten, Acts 26, 12. While engaged, 
uh, as journeying to Damascus. He's going to give his testimony, by the way. With the authority and commission of the chief priest, Acts 26.12, At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around, all around me and those who were journeying with me. And we all had fallen to the gr- and when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But arise and stand on your feet for this purpose. I have appointed you to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also the things which I sh- will appear to you, delivering you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. Now look at this. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, in order that they may receive the forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among all those who have been sanctified by faith in me, Jesus says. God opens our eyes to the gospel. That we would turn from our sin, that darkness, knowing our life. We need salvation from this sin. We need salvation. Turn to Jesus. And we were saved. We were called out of darkness into his marvelous light. A relationship with a holy God who is light. It's marvelous. It's only no good when we're sinning and we don't want to give it up, right? You know that. When you confess your sin, you're walking with the Lord. There's joy. Marvelous light. We were called. We were called out of darkness. God calls us out of darkness to the gospel, out of your sin and death. Let me share one passage again with you. Second uh, Thessalonians 2, turn there, 13. And while you're going there, I want to read to you Colossians chapter 1, verse 12. Actually, I'm going to save that. We'll go to that afterwards. Second Thessalonians 2, 13. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for a salvation, salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. And it was for this that he called you through our gospel, that you might gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ out of darkness into his marvelous light. He calls you out of sin. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent of your sin. He calls you out of that. Colossians chapter 1, verse 12, giving thanks to the Father whom he qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. For he delivered us from the domain of darkness, that's sin and death, and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We were made his people that we would proclaim the excellencies of the one who called us out of darkness into light. What are those excellencies? He did it through Christ. And to proclaim the truth. We've been brought into the sphere of his marvelous light. It's a tremendous reality if you've truly been saved. If you haven't, you're stumbling over Christ and he calls you. Maybe today. Recognize your sinfulness. Recognize your sinfulness and turn to Christ in repentance and faith. He calls you out of darkness. Maybe it's today. Now, what does this proclamation look like in real time? If we are to be outwardly proclaim, what does it look like in real time? Well, we've seen it already that inwardly we should be offering sacrifices of praise, the fruit of our lips. We should be thanking God all the time that he saved us from our old life. We can become so arrogant in our Christianity. We think we're so righteous. We are wretched sinners who God saved by grace and mercy, and we ought to be thankful. And there should be a time where that comes out of our mouth. What time? What is that like? And I struggled with this. I struggled. How does this look, biblically speaking? Are we to walk around everywhere and say, listen to me. This is what Jesus did. Are we to do that? Well, I started off looking in First Peter. What do we see in First Peter about declaring the gospel? What do we see the demeanor in which we should share? Look at First Peter chapter 3. First Peter chapter 3. This is the same book, same, same author, same in spirit inspiring. 1 Peter 3, he says, But even if you should suffer, verse 13, 14, excuse me, even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation or be troubled, but sanctify Christ. That means set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts. That's the key. 
Christ is Lord in my heart. I've got to set him apart. Oh, I've been Lord, Lord. I'm sorry, I confess it. You're Lord in my heart. Set him apart. Always being ready to make a defense for everyone who asks you to give them account for the hope that you have that is in you, and yet with gentleness and reverence. Why do you have hope? There is your opportunity to declare his excellencies. He saved me from my sin. He did it through Jesus Christ. I was a wretch. I was a sinner headed to hell. And he saved me through his son, Jesus Christ. He was merciful upon my life, and he has changed me. He's a great God. There's an opportunity that we see there. We know in Scripture we're not to cast our pearls before swine. We have a picture and a paradigm in the book of Acts how they declared the word of God. They did as they were persecuted. They didn't just say it and over and cast it everywhere. Paul did it where there were opportunities, and when those opportunities were shut down, he moved on to other opportunities. When he was in Athens, there was an opportunity, and he shared the Lord Jesus Christ. He shared repentance when there was an opportunity. We need to be ready for those opportunities to declare his excellencies. If God were to open a door for you, for someone to say, why do you have hope? Why are you not struggling with these things when I can't get them out of my head? Why are you different in the way people treat you and the way you respond at work? Why are you ready to share and declare outwardly the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light? We should be ready. We should be ready. And if you don't have anything truly to say, maybe you've never been called out of his, out of darkness into his marvelous light. If you can't think of anything, maybe you haven't. Even if you don't remember this time when you got saved, if you know the truth of who you are and what you were, and you know what you are now because of Christ. With that in mind, let's finish because he continues to explain the glorious reality in verse 10 of who we are. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Verse 10 is a wonderful verse. Now the NASB has tried to help us out with the term for in there, but in the original Greek language, there really isn't a for there. It really reads like this, and I'll share it. Who, it starts out with who, who not a people, but now a people of God, who had not received mercy, but not received mercy. He's basically expanding on his description of us. Of us. We're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, who were not a people of God, but are now the people of God. There was a time before you came to faith, you were not God's people. You were alienated and without God in the world because of sin. And when you came to Christ, you became his possession. And you know what? It came through the fact that God brought forth mercy. Mercy. We had not received mercy before, but now we have received mercy. The term mercy here in, in, in Greek speaks of an attitude of emotion aroused, uh, that is aroused by action concerning the affliction of another. God saw our state, and he was aroused to mercy and brought the gospel to you. And when you responded, you received mercy. You can't save yourself. God was aroused to the affliction that you were in because of your sin. And he brought forth the truth concerning Jesus Christ. And if you responded, you received his mercy. We are those who weren't a people. We now are a people. We were those who hadn't received mercy. We've received mercy. This is so much grander than all the stuff you are going through and we are going through. Keep your mind and focus on these things. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the truth that we have here in this passage. No commands, just encouragement. Father, I thank you that in contrast to those who reject you and your son, that we are your people, that we are your treasured possession. Lord God, we need to be reminded of how much you love us and how much you care for us. May we remember why you called us out of darkness into your marvelous light.
may we proclaim your excellencies. Lord, I pray that you would give us open doors for those of us who are true believers here, that you would open doors for us to proclaim your excellencies in Christ. Father, we were not your people, but now we are. We hadn't received mercy, but now we have. Thank you. We praise you for that. Lord, I pray for anyone here who is just like we were, dead in their trespasses and sins, alienated from the life of God, separated from you. I pray that today would be the day of salvation, that your compassion and pity upon their state would be manifest in them responding to the gospel concerning your son, Jesus. Lord, may we rearrange our understanding and attitudes in light of what we've learned today. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.